Today, I've been given free reign to speak on anything I want. So, a brief history of Everton in the... Uh, <laughs> um, now, it's always quite hard when you get given free reign because, like, where do you pick in the Bible to speak from that isn't awesome? It's like, how do I narrow it down to one passage? Thankfully, on this occasion, I felt God speak to me quite, quite clearly, actually before Christmas, about something to, uh, he wanted me to share with you today. Um, I hope it comes across okay. Um, I'm actually going to speak from a book which is very rarely preached from. One of the first things I do, then about the other guys who preach, but once I've read the passage I'm going to preach on and, and had some thoughts about it myself, I'll then hit the internet, start Googling it, see what some of the other great preachers have, have spoken about, steal all their ideas and then package it up as if it's all mine on the Sunday morning. Um, I had problems with this one because hardly anyone ever speaks on this passage. <laughs> Uh, even the, some of the greats, like John Piper and uh, Mark Driscoll, if you, if you think he's a great or not, whatever. Um, <laughs> controversial. Uh, very little stuff out there. People seem to avoid uh, this book to preach on, because it's quite a tricky book. Um, but God was kind to me and put it on my heart to share with you today, so isn't that good? Um, and there's a few reasons why I wanted to share from it. Um, one is that it ministered to me. Uh, in, in quite a difficult place recently, and I will share a bit more about that as I go on. Secondly, because I think it's an important passage for us as a church. Uh, it's directly applicable to some stuff that we've been through uh, in, the last, in the last year, last three years, and some of the stuff that's applicable right to us now, some of the stuff we're going through right now, and actually some of the stuff I think we will go through at different times over the next uh, months and years. And finally, it's a good time of year to do this sort of passage as well. It's the start of a new year, as humans, we like to look back on the last year and then look ahead to the next year. And this book kind of, it's a good, it's a good time to read this passage because uh, it, it sets us up to think about what's ahead and what's going on. So without any further ado, I'll read the passage. If you've got your Bible with you, please turn to Ecclesiastes. If you don't know where that is, it's in the Old Testament. If you want to hit Psalms and turn right a couple of books, you'll find it. Um, and I'm going to be reading from chapter 3 and the first 11 verses. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil. I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Now those of you who are a certain vintage will recognise that passage because it was used almost word for word in a pop song in the 60s. Anyone Anyone remember? I'm not looking at you specifically, Jack and Sheila, but uh, <laughs> it was by a bank called The Birds. Say again? After your time. I apologise, Jack. Um, it was a band called The Birds. 
uh, Americans kind of hippie band who pretty much sang this word for word and did really well. And that's Ronnie's nodding. Ronnie knew. Um, good on you, Ronnie. And it was actually used, if you ever listen to the, uh, to, if you ever watch Forrest Gump, uh, one of those, like a great film with Tom Hanks, it's on the soundtrack to that as well. So you might recognise it at some point. It's a really deep passage um, with a lot of beauty to it, actually. Um, and before we go any further, it's always good to jump into the, the context and work out who was writing this, why were they writing it, what was it for? Um, and actually, as we do that, we'll, we'll start to answer some of the questions as to why people don't like reading, uh, preaching from this book so much. Um, the, the origin is debated, but we think, we think Ecclesiastes is probably written by King Solomon. And King Solomon was the son of King David, uh, which would place this book at around 900 years before Jesus, so almost a millennium before Jesus was born. And Solomon was an intriguing character. He was born to David, um, and his mother was Bathsheba. So if we remember, Bathsheba was the woman that David married after he had committed adultery with her, and then he had her husband killed. So not, not, uh, not the best start to life for poor Solomon. But Solomon nevertheless was blessed by God with an incredible gift of wisdom. And he was seen as one of the wisest men who's ever lived. So much so that people would come to visit him and almost see demonstrations of this guy's wisdom. He would, he would put on great demonstrations of it. And the stories in the Bible of some of those examples where he applies his wisdom to really difficult situations. And everyone's astounded. Oh, where, where did he get this from? And he also had the privilege of overseeing the fulfillment of God's promise to David. David was promised by God that he would be able to build the throne, uh, build the temple to God in Jerusalem. And then after David uh, did what he did with Bathsheba, God took that privilege away from him, but still said, one of, your, you know, one of your offspring will do it. And Solomon got to do it. Solomon got to build the temple of God in Jerusalem. And he, he, he made this fantastic, beautiful building, which was incredibly ornate and decorative and a real tribute to the God that he, he loved. And he was also the last king who, who reigned over a united kingdom of uh, Israel and Judah together. He was the last person, the last monarch, who actually reigned over all that together. David managed to unify it. Solomon reigned over it. So he had a lot, a lot of stuff going for him. But he was a very different king to his father. David, if you remember, was a mighty warrior. He, he loved to go out to battle. He loved to go out. And he, and he had amazing shows of strength and military power, which was seen as, as part of kingship. Solomon was less so. He was a rich and prosperous king, but he was also quite peace-loving. And, and actually what he really enjoyed was just lying back in his palace with, with all of his beautiful things. Um, he actually owns huge amounts of armour, more armour than David ever owned, but it was mostly decorative. It was gold and bejeweled and, and really for show rather than action. And really... The key difference between David and Solomon is that David, we know, we often hear him described as a man after God's own heart. A man who loved God, who poured his heart out to God. Uh, We see that in the Psalms. Solomon, to be honest, was often concerned more about his own glory and his own grandeur and his own riches and wealth than he was about God's. And that's illustrated best in that he built this amazing temple. He took seven years to build this temple to God. But he also built himself a new palace and took 13 years to build it. And it was more decorative and more beautiful and more amazing and more large than the temple itself. You can see he's, he's got his priorities a bit wrong, despite all that wisdom. And ultimately, like David, his father, Solomon's weakness for women actually caused his downfall. 
He took many, many wives, way too many. Uh, one's enough. <laughs> uh, Debbie here. Uh, um, often foreign wives from other lands. And actually, he unwisely immersed himself, himself, himself in the cultures and the religious practices that these foreign wives brought with them. Um, and he actually began to worship some of their gods and do some of their religious practices alongside, you know, trying to serve the God that, that, that he knew and loved. And actually God's response in the end was to, was to actually stir up enemies for, for Solomon and punish him that way. And ultimately God told Solomon that you know, the, this kingdom that you've, you've reigned over in peace and prosperity and, and unity, it's going to be split and broken apart. You've, 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 you've ruined it, you've broken it, I'm, I'm taking this away. And that gives us a clue as to why Ecclesiastes is such a difficult book to preach from. Because here we've got Solomon looking back at his life full of lament and frustration. And he's reflecting back on his life and realising actually the folly of some of the stuff he's done. Of some of the stupid things, the stupid decisions that he's made. And these are the writings then of a man who's learnt the hard way that a life of opulent wealth and prosperity is not all it's cracked up to be actually. It's not enough. That in having it all actually you can be left with nothing. And in this book he realises that human life on earth is a fleeting moment in the context of an eternity that's meant to be spent with God. And it's all too easily squandered and wasted away with unhealthy pursuits. And you only need to look at the very first verses of this whole book to see it's a tricky read. I've just put them on the screen there. Solomon opens this book with the, the wonderful words, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from their labours at which they toil under the sun? And he goes on to say, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun and all of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Wow, try preaching that. <laughs> That's where Solomon was at the end of his life. He's realised that so much that he's done is just pointless. All his riches, all his wealth, all his stuff that he had, all these things that he'd enjoyed have amounted to nothing. I bet he was popular at parties at the end of his life. But actually, despite that negativity, I do believe this passage which we're going to read particularly and other parts of the book we're looking at today has some real significance for us and it is packed actually with some helpful truths that, that can really aid us in our walk with God. And, and actually, there's five key things that I'm going to try and draw out of this passage that actually I've learned recently and that God's really put on my heart and I think and I hope that are useful to us as a church, especially as we, as we start a new year. So the first one is this. Life is a roller coaster. I'm not trying to be Ronan Keating from Boyzone. Uh, life is a roller coaster rather than a painless plateau. It's an incredibly and frustratingly common misconception, even heresy, put out there by some Christians that a life lived in Christ is one of bliss and free from pain, and free from the vagaries of this world. If you've been promised that, if you've been told that at any point, that when you become a Christian, life is easy, and everything's great, and everything's rosy, you've been lied to. <laughs> Your life on this earth is, is not that way, actually. We see some of the world's most prominent, famous preachers telling people that if they only have a bit more faith, they'll get everything they ever wanted on this earth. 
and they'll have a happy and prosperous life. And that is rubbish. I'm sorry to tell you that this morning. If you're here this morning seeking God and, and coming to church and thinking, I want to know what church is about. I want to know what God's got to offer me. Do you know what? He's not going to make everything all better in this earth for you. Okay? Sorry to tell you that. Life is hard. And I'm, I'm being honest and blatant about that. And this passage tackles these misconceptions head on and tells us straight. It does get better, by the way. Don't be worried. There's some hope in this message. <laughs> I'm not going to do a Solomon on you all morning. Um, but human life is a journey involving every high and low imaginable. And of that, we can be absolutely certain. That's what he says at the start of this passage. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. Not that we will know exactly what is coming and when, but simply that we need to be prepared to go through seasons. We are not set up to experience 60, 70, 80, 90 years of numbing repetition, of flatline, of everything's okay, or everything's brilliant, or everything's rubbish. There's going to be ups and downs, guys. And the passage sets out 14 pairs of seasons, um, 28 activities that we should expect to actually go through at some point in our lives. Broadly speaking, 14 of them are kind of positive, proactive, creative seasons. And 14 of them are kind of negative more inactive, more destructive seasons. The passage doesn't say whether we'll experience equal amounts of all of these things. Just that there will be appropriate times in our lives to go through all of these. And at some point or another, we will face them. And we need to acknowledge and adapt accordingly. Now this, it shouldn't be news to us, it shouldn't be surprising, but sometimes we, don't, we act as if we don't know this stuff. We often treat adversity like a shocking imposition in our lives. And we're stunned sometimes when things aren't all plain sailing for us in this fallen, broken world of ours. We want to sit back and enjoy life, thinking that good things will magically await us and that we somehow deserve to be handed them all on a silver platter. And yet the truth is right there in front of our eyes. Our very daily existence shows that life is a mixture of good, of bad, of indifference sometimes, of joy of sorrow, of rest and play, of work, of building up and breaking down, of starting and stopping things. And if we needed more proof, the Bible is absolutely full of examples of roller roller coaster lives. Absolutely chocked full of it. Moses, for example, an abandoned child who became a prince and then a self-exiled murderer and then a leader of a great exodus into the desert and promised all these things and then never make it into the promised land. That's, That's a pretty up and down life, isn't it? It's not a flat line, boring life. What about Peter? From a humble fisherman to a close friend of the saviour of the world, to a betrayer of the saviour of the world, to a grieving man, to a man restored by the saviour of the world, and then to being one of the key parts of establishing the church worldwide and then being executed. (laughs) It's a bit of a roller coaster. (laughs) It's not a normal, easy, simple life. Paul, from a noble rich, wealthy Jew and Roman, to a persecutor of the early church, to life-changing, blinded on the road to Damascus, the key apostle and church planter in the early church, to them being imprisoned and shipwrecked and beaten and suffering. Rollercoaster life. And of course, the most important figure in the Bible, the, the, the person that the whole of Scripture points to, Jesus. 
we look at these couplets, these, these, these pairs of things in, in Ecclesiastes, and we see them, several of them, many of them, in the life of Jesus. A time to be born, a time to die. Jesus had the most famous birth and death and resurrection in all of history. A time to tear down, a time to build. Jesus built his church. He tore down the law. The temple curtain split in two. A time to build, a time to rip apart, uh, rip down. A time to weep and a time to laugh. Jesus wept. Jesus mourned. When Lazarus died, he cried his eyes out. When he, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death, he cried out to God. He experienced pain. But we also know he was a joyful person. He, he went to a wedding and, and made loads of wine. <laughs> he liked to party. He was, a, he was a fun person to be around. A time to love and a time to hate. Jesus is the most loving person who's ever, ever lived. And yet at times he, he, he demonstrated that there were things that he hated on earth. Some of the practices that were being lived out, especially you think about when he cleansed the temple, when he saw what was going on in the temple courts, that people were ripping people off, people were changing money, and, 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 and poor people were being ripped off. Jesus went crazy, and he cleansed the place. He, he, he chucked people out of the temple. He hated what they were doing, and he had to demonstrate that. A time, a time to be silent and a time to speak. We know Jesus spoke a lot. He preached. We've got his words thankfully recorded for us. But there were times when he said nothing. When he stood before a court and was questioned and he maintained his silence knowing that there was no point arguing. He knew he was going to die. He knew he needed to die. There was no point. There was a time to be silent. Life is a roller coaster. And the truth is that Things don't always go the way we want. And this passage and the evidence of scripture as a whole, I hope you agree, is, is testament to that. And if we're honest, even if we just look back as a church, 12 months, we have primary source material that tells us that is true as well. There have been amazing highs. There have been births, there have been marriages, there have been healings, there have been jobs started, there have been houses bought, there's been joy, there have been friendships formed. And we've seen death. And we've seen illness. We've seen jobs lost. We've seen house, house purchases fall through. We've seen suffering. We live a roller coaster life as a church as well. And this passage tells us, do you know what? That's normal. That is how life is going to be. And if, if you feel like your life is like that, don't be put off. You're not doing anything wrong. God's not picking on you. You're not alone. Life is like that. But there is good news coming, don't worry. But it's just important to nail that point. The second thing, life is a roller coaster, not a plane of plateau. The second thing, something I've learned recently, we need to understand and acknowledge the season that we're in. So we've established that there are seasons, that life isn't all plain sailing. And many of you are sitting there thinking, well, well, big news, thanks, Chris, thanks for pointing out the obvious. Tell me something I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm not going to. I'm going to tell you something else very obvious. But it's something that I think I personally have only grasped quite recently, that it is important that we understand where we are, what season we're in, and we acknowledge it and do something about it. And I'm going to share a little bit of my own recent story. I hope you'll permit me to do that. Um, it's stuff that I've been going through, but I hope it's helpful as I share it. 
the last time I stood here and preached, uh, it was the middle of November. And I spoke on 1 Corinthians, passage all about love and God's agape love and the agape love that we're supposed to share as a church. And I shared very, very a small amount just that I've been struggling a bit recently. I didn't go into any detail. Um, but I had been blessed by the love of the church community around me. And do you know what? I wasn't kidding about the struggling. And the very next day, I went to the doctor. And long story short, but over the next couple of weeks and months, I was diagnosed with uh, an anxiety disorder and with actually mild to moderate depression. And I was signed off work and I suddenly found myself somewhere that I'd never been before. A new season of life. And for me, that was like a dam bursting. And ever since then, one day at a time, I've been trying to take the steps I need to take to piece my life back together and, and get back on a, on a better setting. But as I stopped and I rested and I prayed and I, I read and I spent time with God, I realized some pretty huge things. And actually, when I look back, I could see the beginnings of what I, I was now going through as far back as three, four years ago. Actually, the problems had started back then. There were things that, that were going on that I just pushed down, not acknowledged, ignored, squashed them down, and hidden them. All in a bid to make life work and to be successful and to prove to everyone that I was strong and I could cope and I could do this. Whatever life throws at me, I'm all right, Jack. Not, not you, Jack. Just um, <laughs> When, in actual fact, if I'm honest, I was ignoring some seasons that I needed to spend time in. And I needed to acknowledge. And some of them were on this list in, in Ecclesiastes. There were things that I needed to acknowledge as lost. I needed to mourn some things. Some things that I had lost in my life. But I didn't. I just pushed on and buried them. And, and piled on through. And, and those things that I needed to grieve and acknowledge that I had lost. Just built up inside of me. And got bigger and bigger and bigger. Until, until I cracked. I'd been through quite a lot of uprooting in my life, but I hadn't acknowledged. I just pressed forward and moved forward and thought about the next day and the next day and didn't give myself time to process that things had changed quite wildly and there were some things that I'd lost and things that had, had gone and I'd been uprooted, but I just concentrated on the future and didn't, didn't give myself time to process and, 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 and reflect. And actually, to be honest, I spent too much time speaking and not enough time in silence. Not enough time listening to God. Not enough time just hearing his voice and allowing him to speak to me and minister to me. And too much time opening my big trap and doing all the talking. And if I did give any thought to those seasons, I viewed them as unpleasant and unnecessary. And I didn't give a thought to the fact that what that verse says, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. There's a time to go through these things. There's a time to deal with them. And it was a big mistake in, in ignoring the seasons and in not processing them and not, in not dealing with them. It led to imbalance and pain, and I think that's a problem that we need to deal with. And again, in Jesus, we see a perfect example of a man who at all times knew where he was, who knew the season he was in and knew how to deal with it. And he took time to address it appropriately. When Jesus needed to weep and mourn and grieve, he wept. Wept openly. When Jesus needed to be alone, he withdrew. He went off silently in a way and spent time with his father <coughs> on his own. 
when he needed company, he gathered people together and gathered close friends around him and recognized when he needed that. When he needed to vent and blow off steam and be angry, he did it. He didn't allow it to become pent up inside of him and not process it. He dealt with it. He acknowledged where he was at and processed it appropriately. He was a man in touch with his emotions and a man who recognized the seasons that he went through in his life. Does that make sense? And we need to know that we will go through seasons and that we need to somehow be acutely aware of where we're at. Because there's some seasons that are going to be difficult and some seasons that are hard and that we don't want to be in. And to get out of them, we actually need to be honest with ourselves and honest with each other and vulnerable and then surrender to God and allow him to help us to climb out of them. So do you know what? We may need to acknowledge some losses in our lives and allow ourselves to be sad about them and to grieve them appropriately and to deal with it with God. We may need to recognize and address some unhealthy patterns in our life and ask God to break them, a time, that season of breaking down in order to deal with sin. For example, King David, after all that stuff with Bathsheba, he was estranged from God. And it was only when the prophet Nathan came to him and challenged him and said, do you realize what you've done? David realized the season he was in. And only then could he repent and come back to God and repair that broken relationship. Until then, he hadn't realized, I'm in a season of, 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 of that. We may need to acknowledge and admit that we're doing something or living somewhere or, or in, in a part of our life where actually we're not quite doing what God wants us to do. And we know, may know it deep down, but actually sometimes we need to allow God to challenge us and uproot us and put us somewhere else. And the prime example would be Jonah. God, Jonah knew where God wanted him. Jonah knew very directly where God wanted him to go and he didn't go. And eventually he had to face up to the fact and say, wow, God, I'm in the wrong place here. I'm, in, I'm inside a fish. <laughs> I need to be where you want me to be. I'm sorry, I acknowledge it. Now will you help me to get where, where you want me? Or vice versa, you might be in a season of uprooting and change and you're, and you're trying to get out, you're trying to move, you're trying to go somewhere else. And actually God's saying, do you know what? I want you to stay. The season you're in now is a season of, of putting down roots of planting, of staying and growing. I don't want you to be looking elsewhere. And that's a different season as well. Again, it sounds obvious, but there's something important about being honest with ourselves and listening to God and acknowledging where we are. And there are some seasons that will last longer than they need to if we don't accept that we're in them and deal with them and move on from them. And that can be the hardest step. For me, the hardest step was going to that doctor that morning and saying, I'm not right. I need help. Until that moment, I couldn't get out of where I, I was. I couldn't start to get out. But having done that and acknowledged it and put a name to it and said, I'm in this season, God, will you help me get out? That's when we can start to move forward and make progress. And it forced me to turn to God Instead of getting on with my agenda, instead of getting on with my way of dealing with things, now, at that moment, it was God's agenda, not mine. And that's, there are times in our lives when we need to face up to that. And it's a hard lesson to learn, and believe me, it's been a very hard lesson to learn, but it's an important one. The third thing, we're starting to move on to some better news now. 
hope you're still with me. There is not a single season in which God is absent. There is not a single one of those seasons that we've read about where God is not there with us. Not one. And again, it sounds obvious, and we sing this stuff all the time, but it bears repeating. Because I think all too often, we know it up here, but we don't allow it to sink in down here. And this passage reminds us that we only see in part, but God sees everything. Verse 11 tells us that we are made to be eternal, but only God knows the whole story. Only, see, only he sees the whole picture. Only he knows where we are heading from birth to death in our earthly lives. God knew the moment we would be born. He planned it. He set it in eternity. And he knows the day we'll all die. He knows it. He knows every choice we will make, every way we will turn along the way. Good and bad. Nothing is a surprise to God. There is no situation or season that you can find yourself in that will be a surprise to God. That can catch him unaware. One of our favourite passages, we, we, we quote it a lot, it's up there in the, uh, in the green. For I know the plans I have for you, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. It's quoted often, but easily let go of when the going gets tough. But the key is he's promised to give us a future. A future and a hope. Now, that is something we have to trust him for. We can't see it. We're not mind readers. God may give us gifts of prophecy, but we can't all look ahead and say, I know exactly what's going to happen next. But we trust that God has a plan and that it is perfect and he knows. And we know that the promises of God are unbreakable. He doesn't break promises. And throughout scripture we see written large that the promise that God is always with us. I'm going to read this from uh, Psalms uh, 139, Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. There's nowhere we can go where we can escape God. We can't shake him off. <laughs> In fact, everywhere we go, he's already gone before us. He's there. He's with us. So no matter what season you're in right now, there may be more than one season that you're feeling right now, please know and please understand that God is there. He is with you. He knows. And Paul bears that up in, in, in Romans 8. Again, it's up there. 8, 30, 39. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
There's nothing. Nothing that can ever happen to you on this earth can separate us from God. We're his. He is ours. That's not changing. And we say it often, but it bears repeating, especially when we're in those dark, difficult seasons, especially when we're struggling. It's important to know he's there with us. And his, and his love is tangible and real and helpful. Sometimes in the, in the good seasons, we forget that he's there as well. When things are going great, how often do we forget to thank God and rejoice that he's with us there as well? God is there in all of the seasons. And he wants to be at the center of all seasons. He doesn't want to be on the periphery, on the edge. He doesn't want to be an afterthought. He doesn't want to be someone that you turn to only when you most need him. God wants to be at the center of every season and he will be if you let him. There's not a single season that can't be improved by putting God in the middle of it. Not one. That's the third point. Fourth is this. God can use even the most unpleasant, difficult season for his glory and for our benefit. And this is one of the key ones to know. Put that quote up there from Isaiah 61 that our God can create beauty from ashes. God can do amazing things and with our brokenness, with our weakness. God can bring beauty. God can bring incredible good news. Again, if I think about my, my own recent experiences, did I choose to go through this? No. If you gave me the choice of going through it again, no thank you. But can I see that God is using this time to grow me and to nurture me and to minister to me and help me in my walk with him? Yes. Yeah, I can see that. I can feel it. He's doing something with me. As painful as it is, there's beauty coming from the ashes, I hope. And it's important for me to go through this. Even if, I, even if it hurts. And I'm sure that many of you can identify with similar times in your life, might, but maybe even right now, where you can think and you know that actually you can feel God starting to work and bring you out. You may be able to look back at a situation long ago, which at the time was horrible and difficult, but when you look back, you think, God, I see what you did there. I know why you did that. Thank you. It may be that right now you're in the thick of a difficult season and you can't see what God is doing or going to do, and there's no hope as far as you can see. But we need to trust as we said before, that he has that plan for us and he has a future for us and he is as good as his work, as his word, sorry. I want to talk particularly on this point about a, a specific season because it has relevance to what some of us have experienced recently and something that all of us will experience at some point in our lives. And on this, I want to recommend a book to you. I haven't got a copy with me today. I've lent it to my dad, actually. Um, it's a book by a guy called Peter Scazzaro. It's called The Emotionally Healthy Church. Um, if you can track that book down, please get hold of it. It is excellent. On the subject of grief and of mourning, this passage tells us that there is a time to weep. There is a time to mourn and a time to dance, but there is a time to mourn. And again, honestly, I am not good at this. I'm terrible at it, in fact. Debbie, on various occasions down the years, has referred to me as an emotional brick. 
why can't you cry? Won't you just cry sometimes? I'm not a crier, normally. I don't like to process my emotions and let them out. I don't like to show that. I, I like to put on a brave face, to bottle things up and deflect attention with, with humour and cheesy jokes. That's what I do. If you ever wonder where my cheesy jokes come from, it's normally because it's masking something deep down that I don't really want to deal with, so I'll just make jokes instead. But this passage tells us that there's a right time, a perfect time, to mourn, to weep. It doesn't sound like much fun, but it's important. And when we look at Jesus, again, we see evidence of that in his life. When his friend Lazarus died, <coughs> he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He knew that Lazarus was going to be okay because he, he was about to raise him from the dead. But the shortest verse in the Bible comes there, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He mourned for, his, for the loss of his friend. He mourned that death had taken hold and taken his friend away from him. He wept in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced up to what he was about to do on the cross. He wept. In fact, he sweated so profusely <coughs> that he shed uh, blood as he sweated. He was in immense anguish and pain. He wept. And we see over and over again in the Bible, Jesus, just a couple of examples there, but loads of examples in the Bible of national mourning as, a, as an important process. If you think of David, David was persecuted by the king he was about to succeed, King Saul. King Saul tried to kill David on several occasions and made his life a misery. David had a great relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan, but Saul himself was an absolute horror to David. And then, finally, Saul died in battle, and Jonathan died as well. That was finally the moment where David's life was going to be okay. He was going to take the throne of Israel. He was going to finally see all the promises that God had made to him fulfilled. Should have been a good day for him. Finally, this guy's off my tail. This guy's made my life misery. It's gone. The Bible tells us David declared a time of mourning. He put on sackcloth and ashes and he wept for the loss of the king and the loss of his friend Jonathan. Before he moved on with his life and stepped into what God had promised for him, he knew it was appropriate and he knew it was necessary to weep what had gone before. And that was an important season in David's life. And the Bible repeats that so often. We see so many times where, where there's mourning and, and, and weeping as an appropriate response, as a necessary response to help process grief. And it's not fun. It's not easy. But for some reason, while I've been off, while I was off, I finally made the connection between that and something that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I don't think I've properly understood that before until what I've gone through recently. That in mourning and grieving, as painful as they are to experience, we are promised comfort by God himself. As we cry out to him in abject pain and sorrow, as we weep our, our sorry little hearts out, we're not ignored, we're not abandoned, we're not forgotten. We are met with love and comfort and peace. But when we are weakest, we are made strong. When we are at our lowest, we are not alone. There's immense comfort to be found in God. And again, a key moment for me recently 
was a time of worship I had on my own. I was in my front lounge. I just stuck a couple of worship songs on and I was singing and suddenly just found myself overcome with grief as I recognized what had been going on in my life. And Debbie wasn't there, unfortunately, to see me cry like a baby. <laughs> the one time I showed some emotion and Debbie wasn't there. But I, I honestly, I just broke down. It was like a dam burst and I just wept and wept and wailed. I don't know if the next door neighbors were in there, probably wondering what was going on. But it just broke. And I allowed, I guess, several years of pain just to come flooding out as I knelt in the presence of God. But somehow in doing that, that thing that comes so unnaturally to me, which deep down I've always felt was a negative and unglorified thing to do, God met me in a powerful, profound way that I hadn't experienced before. And I felt his comfort at a deeper level than I've ever, ever known. As I allowed myself to just let it out, God met me. It's hard to describe, but that's what happened. And the words, the very words that I'd sung, which, which triggered that, was from a song by a band called United Pursuit. It was this, I reach out and you find me in the dust. And you say that no amount of untruth can ever separate us. I reach out, you find me in the dust. And you say that no amount of untruth can ever separate us. At that moment, I was in the dust. I was, I was hating life at that point. And I reached out to God, and he met me. And he said, you know what? Nothing's ever going to separate us. I'm always with you. I'm here. And that ministered to me in a way that I'd never allowed it to before. And I hope that each of us, when we go through our, our difficult seasons, I hope you get the opportunity to have a moment like that, where you reach out to God and you recognize, God, I can't do this. This, is, this sucks. <laughs> will, you meet, will you meet me? And do you know what? God will. As we reach out, he finds us and he ministers to us. I'm sure there are people in this room right now who feel like you're at rock bottom, like you're in the dust, like God has abandoned you or forgotten you, and I assure you he has not. But there's a need to reach out. There's a need to reach out. And as you reach out, that is where God comforts us and gives us strength and reminds us that we can never, ever be separated from him. Okay, last one, the fifth point that I uh, haven't seemed to put on the screen, which is good. The fifth one, if you've got a pen and paper. Um, and this is where hopefully we really hit some good news. Seasons are seasonal. <laughs> Let that sink in. The seasons are seasonal. They don't last forever. They don't last forever. There's a time for all of these things to happen on earth and more, but none of them last forever. Even the most difficult seasons, it doesn't last forever. There's a hope and an assurance that each season will come to an end in God's perfect timing. And no matter how difficult a place you're in, there is a hope and a knowledge that you're not going to be there forever. And actually, our earthly, seasonal roller coaster life will one day be replaced by an eternal experience of heavenly perfection. And that is something that we have to hold on to and enjoy and look forward to. 
Because that's what this passage says. He has set eternity in the heart of men and women. <laughs> I've got an outdated version. He has also set, uh, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has put eternity into our hearts. This roller coaster life we experience on earth is not it. It's temporary. Solomon would tell you it's a chasing after the wind. It's a breath and then it's gone. However long it is, it's but a speck of dust in the context of eternity. And when we're in our lowest moments, when we're in those difficult seasons, we need to hold on to the fact that we have an eternity of joy, of peace, of love, of heaven to look forward to. And I said at the start, if you're here today looking at God and wondering, is this, what's this Christianity thing all about? And I said, it ain't going to lead to an easy life. And your, your time on, heaven, on, on earth won't be a picnic even if you become a Christian. This is the good news. This is why Christianity is something that needs to be checked out. Because, yes, life on earth might not be easy, but life in heaven, life in paradise with our God is going to be incredible. And he has promised it to us. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it. We deserve, actually, as, as humans, as people who constantly get things wrong, who constantly fly in the face of what God wants, us, wants for us, we don't deserve a life with him. And yet he's made a way. He sent his son Jesus, the man for all seasons, the man who lived every season and lived it perfectly. God sent him as our example and as our saviour to make possible a life of eternity with God. That's the good news. There's good news in that God is with us in every season down here. But there's better news that we're not down here forever. And that we're going to spend a lifetime, an eternity, more than a lifetime, with God. Isn't that incredible? And that's so important to live with that hope. When God says, I have a plan for you. I have a hope and a future for you. That's it. That is it. And if we don't live in the knowledge of that hope, then trust me, it's not going to be much fun down here. <laughs> because we'll have nothing to, to focus on, nothing to set our eyes on beyond here. But we have. We have our God who we cannot wait to have us with him for all eternity. So wrapping up, as you look ahead to 2017, we're already in it, but there's still a long way to go. Are you ready for another roller coaster? Because it's coming. It's going to be an up and down year, guys. There's no two ways about it. There's going to be brilliant things that happen. I believe that God is going to do incredible things through us as a church and through our lives as individuals. But I also know, just being absolutely honest, there's going to be some times that just suck. There are. I'm not being prophetic here, I'm just being real. But I can promise us, promise you, that in every single moment, God is there. And in every single moment, He is with us, and He has gone before us, and He's available, and He wants that roller coaster ride to be ridden with Him. 
and that ultimately at the end of that ride, whenever that may be, there's something better to come. Um, as, as, as a church, we need to focus on that. We need to look forward to that and we need to preach that to this city that doesn't know anything more than this painful ride. There's a city out there that only knows this roller coaster and nothing else and they have nothing to fix their eyes and we do and we need to share that.